This podcast includes information provided by the issuer and does not express the views of the interviewer. This podcast may also include forward-looking statements by the issuer that involve certain risks and uncertainties to its business. Because forward-looking statements are subject to risks and uncertainties, the issuer's actual results could differ from those indicated in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T, and you are listening to episode 105. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rkraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the microcap message. For this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Peter Rabover, Managing Director at Artco Capital. I met Peter after following him on Twitter for a while and became a fan of his commentary and insights on the market. And then I reached out to him to be on the podcast. You know, some of the key highlights for me from, from this talk was learning more about his investing journey, his story, and how he's changed his approach over time, and also how poker has helped his investing philosophy. Thank you again for tuning in to episode 105 of the Planet Microcap podcast, and please enjoy my interview with Peter Rabover. But first, a word from our sponsor. To my loyal listeners, subscribers, and fans, Robert Kraft here, your host on the Planet Microcap podcast. The 2020 Investor Conference season is upon us. Where are you going this year? I'd like to take a second to invite you to join me maybe a few of the guests you've heard on this podcast, to our annual Microcap Investor Conference, the Planet Microcap Showcase, April 21st through 23rd, 2020 at Bally's Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas. The Planet Microcap Showcase will be two and a half days of company presentations, networking opportunities, an educational workshop, and you will get to meet privately in one-on-one meetings with management of well-known emerging growth private and publicly traded microcap companies. We are back with new surprises and programming that you will not want to miss. So join us for the Planet Microcap Showcase, April 21 through 23, 2020 at Bally's Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas. For more information and register to attend, please visit www.planetmicrocapshowcase.com. See you in Vegas. This is Robert Kraft, and I'm your host on the Planet Microcap podcast, and with me today is a very special guest, Mr. Peter Rabover. He is the general partner at Artco Capital. Peter, welcome to the Planet Microcap podcast. How are you doing? Thank you. I, uh, I don't know if I'm very special, but I appreciate the introduction, so that's here we are. Hey, anybody who's willing to actually take the time and talk to me, th- there mm. must be something special about <laughs> them, so I do appreciate it. Well, as I as I said previously, it's Wednesday afternoon. Markets are closed. It's Christmas, so a glass of bourbon and a good conversation, and I'm ready for it. So. Hey, brother Lachaim. Uh So, so with that said, uh, let let's get started with your background. You know, uh, what would you say has led to where you are at today? You know, starting of Arco Capital and the, the whole deal. Yeah, you know, so I thank you for the question. I get that asked a lot, and I, I guess I don't really get tired of talking about it because it's certainly been a journey. But when I was uh, 19 and undergrad at Duquesne University and I was just kind of trying to figure out what to do. I had asked one of my professors during, I want to say it was the summer of 99 or 2000, um, to, uh, for some finance books. And I had never spoken to this guy. And so he handed me a giant theory of tech, uh, theory of finance textbook. And I kind of finished it over about two weeks. I had a stupid computer lab job on campus and that's all I did. I was just reading it. And so I devoured it. I, I read it and, and I, um, I think this was like a good time in my brain development of figuring out, hey, this makes sense. This is different from what I thought the stock market stuff is, except that the whole like theory of efficient markets and all that stuff, that didn't really make sense. It didn't jive that there's like this whole active management industry, but there's a fi- efficient market theories and that was still relatively new in the late 90s. And so – it didn't make sense to me. So he said, okay. So he handed me a, uh, the Warren Buffett letters, basically, this book. And he's like, read that. And I read that also like in a week, devoured it. And I was like, yes, this makes perfect sense. Like buying cheap assets and hopefully, you know, with the low margin of safety, you're not going to like low risk and or 
whatever your tolerance for risk is and higher upside. And so um, that made much more perfect sense to me very intuitively, like clicked right away. And that's when I got hooked. I said, like, this is what I want to do. And I joined our investment club right away. And then the following year, I ended up, you know, it was like a $100,000 undergrad portfolio. Unfortunately, or fortunately, in some ways, it happened to be like right during the bust, the dot com bubble burst. And so very valuable experience in that. I was like, you know, seeing things go down 80%. And then the following year, you know, you had the WorldCom, you had Enron's, you had all those things. And so I, you know, I kind of brag about this kind of in a funny way, but I was born into the investment world during like almost the worst possible time, but also the best possible time, which made me a much more risk averse investor. And, you know, seeing things go down to zero, seeing things go down like 80% off of a hype mania. And, that's kind of how I was shaped. And I think that's a little different from what the people who are been born into the investment market the last 10 years, uh, you know, this continuous bull market and things seem pretty easy. And so I like to draw that distinction pretty well. And, you know, and uh, also having sat through the 2008 um, uh, bubble pretty at, at a seat where I was re responsible for one third of our portfolio. So that, that's kind of the, the background, right? Of, what shaped my value investing philosophy? And I think you, you wanted to ask a question. Yeah, I was I was going to say like so. Okay, so you're in your college, you're in college, you you get these books, you're just you're digging through them. It's ninety nine. You're like, this is it. I know what I want to do. So from there, you graduate. I mean, then what? I mean, what what? Yeah, then? It, it, it was interesting. So this is what I wanted to do, right? And yeah. uh, but like, what know. is this? You don't even know yet. You're just like, yeah, I guess. Well, yeah. Well, no, it's interesting. There was all these there was all these websites back then, like Wet Beat and Monster, and yeah. all. It's like I didn't. Uh, Duquesne was a good school, but it wasn't like the top uh, market school, and nobody certainly came to recruit from Wall Street uh, at Duquesne. And so I didn't really know how to get into this world. And I had a corporate finance internship at a Fortune 500 company treasury department, and you know the writing was kind of on the wall that there was a recession coming, and they offered me a job, and. Um, and I, I said, okay, I'll do this for a few years, except that like literally on the eve of my graduation, which, which was December 2001, they pulled the offer. They kind of laid off half of the corporate staff to begin with. So yes, I was slightly unemployed in December 2001. And I, I had a couple of choices. One was uh, I, I've always wanted to do the Peace Corps. So I, and I did end up doing it. And then the other one was the U.S. Steel, which is a large corporate manufacturing company sure. in their kind of audit department, which, uh, you know, they assured me was more finance focused than accounting focused because I didn't really have that much of an accounting background. So I ended up taking the U.S. Steel thing and I was there for about a year and a half. I got to luckily, you know, I got to work on some pretty good deals over there. They even sent me to Serbia for six months, whole other different conversation nice. and work on a bunch of deals there. Wait, is that, where the, is that where the Russian bear nickname came from? I, I'm not. I'm, no, no. I, I, <laughs> I, 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 I wrestled in high school and in college. Um, oh, okay. And I was, uh, and I'm Russian. And so I think my friends sort of stuck with uh, Russian bear. And since then I've uh, both, both like the Twitter handle and, I don't know. It's one of those things that I certainly didn't push for, but I'm not gonna, <laughs> uh, I'm not gonna fight it. And it's kind of a fun name, right? And so anyway, so I so I ended up taking U.S. Steel, and I said I'm going to study for the CFA tests exams and try to get into the investment management world. You know, once I get the CFAs, I'll get my requisite finance experience. And but I think CFA is is a little bit more must have now rather than back then. It was a head above you know a, a, above ground, and so. Um, uh, and so I didn't really enjoy your steel. It was very like middle management path career oriented thing. And I'm more of a bull in a China shop kind of guy. And, uh, um, and so I ended up going into the Peace Corps and I was in Kazakhstan for two years. And wow. you know, that was kind of interesting. I taught business at a university. I did small business consulting and we started a, uh, micro, uh, lending, uh, fund out over there as well. The first one in Kazakhstan. And, well, yes, high five on joining the Peace Corps. I didn't realize that you could even do that in the Peace Corps. I thought when you do the Peace Corps, you know, you're going to you're building homes and all that kind of stuff. I didn't realize there was even 
a, a business route you could go down. That's pretty cool. Yeah, no, no. It, it was, I mean, it was an interesting experience. Keeping in mind, I was like 23, 24 and, you know, wasn't. And my whole goal was to get back into investment management as well. So I was studying for the CFA while I was there. I ended up taking a level three in Kazakhstan. I had to take like the 42-hour train ride to take it in Almaty. And there was two other people in the room. It was pretty funny, actually. So it's, uh, but my point is, all of a sudden, you know, I was done. I was this 24-year-old with a CFA charter back in the United States in uh, in uh, San Francisco, where my parents had moved, and I had full intentions of going to New York, joining Wall Street, etc. And I had just, you know, I figured while I'm hanging out at my parents' couch, I I had applied for some jobs in the Bay Area just to practice some interviews, and I think people were like. Huh? Who is this 24-year-old with a CFA charter? So I got a I got a bunch of interviews, um, and one was actually with a, a microcap uh, activist guy. Uh, his name is Andrew Shapiro, and he was pretty. That was a pretty interesting uh, interview that I've had with him, and I've kept in touch with him over the years. But in the end, I, I got a job offer from a company called Han Capital Management, and they were a mid-cap value shop. And I, I would say. You know, I count my career and lucky, like I guess in some luck, you need some luck. And I just ended up having a really great boss, John Schaefer, who was really committed to my growth as an analyst and kind of, but at the same time, let me run with, you know, with my ideas and my book. And uh, by, you know, by year three, he let me become a senior analyst and I ran, you know, one third of the book over there. And, you know, I, I, I thought that experience was both invaluable, both from like the mid 2000s to the 2008, 2009 crash, having ownership of the portfolio. Um, you know, we certainly I certainly made some mistakes on there. You know, I've certainly had things go down significantly, but I've also made some very good picks in the portfolio, including, you know, it's kind of funny I tell the story, but the last thing I, I did is I put in Valiant Pharmaceuticals at $5 per share into the portfolio in, the, in late to in early 2009, late 2008, and before I left for business school. And uh, that clearly worked out really well for them. And, uh, um, and so I've always kind of joke with my boss that you're welcome. So, um, <laughs> And I and I had gone out to business school and I consulted for them for a little bit. But so that was kind of I would say this was a more defining experience that I had in the industry. And I would say, um, you know, if I had to give a recommendation, if you're choosing between money and experience earlier on in your career, I would say pick pick more experience rather. But um, so I ended up going to University of Virginia, Darden Graduate Business School in, uh, in 2009 to 2011. Uh, I had a, a very interesting private equity internship with a Goldman shell firm consolidating the present telecom industry. And uh, that was just a very interesting summer, like really hands on. And this was certainly micro caps. The deals were like 30 to 100 million. They were private, not, right. not public. But, you know, this is certainly the field that I play in now and being hands on and visiting all these targets. I actually helped sell. sell Sorry, save a like a thirty million dollar deal that that we had. You know that was a really good experience. I think for what I'm doing now. And after Darden, I ended up getting a large cap value shop uh, job at a company called Sharp Investments, another pretty reputable um, shop. Where, but it was twenty five large cap stocks with a six person team that turned over three or four stocks a year and. You didn't really like there wasn't a whole lot to do. And I think uh, pretty boring in, in some ways. Large caps are pretty boring. And uh, um, and so it just wasn't a good cultural fit. I think it was like by late by early 30s, you sort of figure out that you might not fit into certain cultures. And uh, I, again, I'm I'm always uh, as you can see by my Twitter, I'm always the bull in a china shop kind of uh, kind of person. I'm not shy about it, and I'm pretty comfortable with it actually, to be to be honest. But it certainly wasn't one where I, after interviewing in my mid 30s after Sharf. I said, hey, I can't really keep doing this because this is a pretty – like I can't keep working for somebody in this industry who – and kissing ass and being politically correct. and That's just not me. Like right, that's that's not – I'm – you know, if, I, if somebody says something stupid, I will tell them you said something stupid. So which is all led to the impetus of starting Narco Capital for uh, four and a half years ago. Uh, and so the focus here is like I worked for a mid-cap value shop. I worked for a large-cap value shop and – we did really well over those years. I certainly had some successful picks, 
And I, you know, I could convince myself that, hey, I'm a really good investor, value investor, and uh, I can launch a billion dollar shop and collect large fees. But realistically, I, you know, that whole theory of finance textbook sort of and all the studies since then sort of been always in the back of my mind. And I think with the rise of index funds, I felt it would be somewhat unethical for me to try to charge the fees that I would like to charge for my skills um, verse, uh, to the people who's alternative realistically much better in index funds, like, right. Um, until we hit some sort of point separate discussion, I think we're going to be close to that point where active will start to be popular again. It's a, it's a, to me, it's a cyclical, not a secular issue, but having said that, I mean, I wanted to see where, uh, where could I create value and charge, uh, you know, performance fees and, and management fees um, and, and still create value over that. And I, you know, I've just discovered small caps and micro caps were still a space um, where you could make significant returns that are off the run. And I'm sure we'll discuss this in, in a second. But the the concept there is like you just have to stay small. Like, right. And I over the years, I figured out that I thought my size, my ideal size was 50 million dollars. I actually think it's 35. Like, right. And so and that's still hard. That's still hard to deploy in, in microcaps. Yeah, well, in the strategy that I would be doing, it wouldn't be easy. But I yeah. have certainly put put in some some protections. And we can talk about that. But uh, again, the concept here was to create a value-added, unindexable product for my investors, right? Gotcha. Where, where for the most part, you know, uh, you know, I'll I'll be honest. Like this this past quarter, we added Philip Morris. It was just too stupid not to add it, right? It's a mega cap, but. Um, for the most part, it's been off the run micro caps that are like 50 to 200 million dollars in size. And I think we've done pretty well in terms of staying by our original intent of providing a alternative product that's a little bit probably closer to private equity and in, in liquidity aspects of it versus uh, – you know, public equities. And, you know, that, that, that's where it ends up. The, the real alpha in this business is time, like, right. There's time arbitrage that, you know, you have to be patient. And, uh, so, uh, yeah, I've created a lockup structure in our fund. That's about three to five years. And there's a sliding scale for management fees on that. And so my goals are aligned with my investors goals. And, uh, and there's certainly a liquidity liquidity aspect, which also aligns with a lockup. Like, right. So those are the two sources of alpha: time arbitrage and liquidity. And I, you know, I, I wish there was more magic sauce to it, but I think it's just it's the ability to stay patient and having an investor base that's aligned with your goals are are probably the two secrets to the success in, in this particular space. So that's a that's that's the spe that's the spot. So 100% interview over. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, actually, <laughs> while I'm talking, ironically, I just got a message that says WorldCom CEO Ernie Ebers granted early release. So how 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 timely on this on this whole situation? <laughs> right. So uh, let's uh, but let's keep going. So, so I I want to dive in here. And, and by the way, before I dive in on on your investment strategy, I got to say you mentioned Andrew Shapiro, friend of the podcast. We love Andrew. And so uh, that that was just that's a small world. Um, yeah, yeah, it's a, well, it, it kind of is like right. Yeah. Microcaps are—it's a small world. It's, right? a, it's a small world. But yeah. uh, so, so let's dive in. Your investment investing strategy. What would you say it is, and how would you say it's different? It, it, how would you say your microcap investing strategy is different than maybe some of the other fund managers out there? And you mentioned yeah. it a little bit already, but you know, yeah, I'm, there's I mean, a lot. Like, more. It's really, it's really interesting. So I had started four and a half years ago, and from for all intents and purposes, I, I think one of the key pieces that's sort of missing in our industry, which I think would be, there should be some sort of school for it. I don't know, um, is the transition for analysts from being an analyst to a portfolio manager. And I don't think we do uh, as an industry a well enough job, both from the business, top business schools perspective, to mentorship to of providing the those sort of skills so um i think that's sort of been one of the bigger things and i and i, I would like to discuss it and so i think when you are an investor so what's been the biggest difference i want to say evolution of the last four and a half years i've sort of stopped seeing stocks as individual uh 
securities, which which is what they are, like right. But when you're an analyst, that's what you're wedded to. You are, you know, you're pounding the table on this, etc. And I've started to see things much more in a portfolio context. So I think, you know, to go back to your original question, part one would be uh, part of my secret sauce is maybe stop seeing things as a black and white. This is this is the situation that I am pounding the table on and rather seeing it as a probabilistic portion of your portfolio, like, right. And so instead of saying, Hey, I think this thing is worth a hundred, it's 20 today. And I think it's worth a hundred. What I've started to kind of think about is I think there's a 70% chance that this thing could be a hundred. And I think there's like a 20% chance to that this thing is maybe 15 like right so and and so i've started to think about things in a much more nebulous way rather than some price targets or um things and uh one of the things that i uh, going back to my thing we don't do enough training for for people i've actually become a much better poker player and i've uh <laughs> you know and this year i got to play professionally a little bit and i'm pretty excited about it i've done pretty well and so and i think a playing poker has made me a much better investor and being an, a, a portfolio manager and i think being a, a, an investor made me become a much better poker player so it's kind of a, a a feeding thing but when you are playing in tournaments you are certainly stopped viewing each individual hand and you're viewing it in terms of probabilities the size of your stack and really kind of the people around the table and i draw the distinction to micro cap a lot of times you are around the table with only like you know in the poker it's nine people but in micro caps maybe it's like 30 or 40 who are only doing the the, the, the or, or four <laughs> or, four. I, or four i yeah i i don't know and, and and so i think to answer your question what what's me I think that's been the transition that's made me slightly more successful, I think, in, in that sense. Um, and I both from uh, taking losses and adding to certain positions, doubling down on certain positions and, you know, cutting some losses. I think that's uh, that's made me much better because all of a sudden, you know, you stop thinking about it in terms of like, oh, I invested in this. and I told everybody about it and now I have to stick to it versus hey, I, you know, I think my loss aversion has sort of changed on this and I'm not comfortable with it. And so I'm going to sell it even though there's still upside. So that's, that, those are kind of things. So, so. so would you say that ties in with, because you mentioned this in your, in your investor packet, is would you say that ties in with your, this idea of enhanced portfolio construction, this idea of it's not just black and white, you're really, I, I don't know, do you have a formula that you, that you look at when you say, okay. Yeah, it's, it's, this, a, it's a little bit, I mean, I would say so... Uh, the strategy is kind of twofold, and one is the old school value strategy, and that's about core value. It's about 80% of the portfolio fluctuates between 70 and 90%, where we like to have you know eight to 12 positions in that bucket at significant sizes of eight to 12%, and the focus in that. Uh, in those situations is on the downside, like right because. Uh, uh, Everybody's been wrong in this business. Everybody's lost money. Uh, I think it's a thing that you have to admit, like, right? And so um, the the focus here is if you're wrong, manage your wrongness, I guess, so to say, in the, in the sense of uh, if you're wrong, make sure it doesn't cost you, right? And so that's the focus, like, right? The fo and in that sense, it's still the old school Warren Buffett. Sometimes there's occasional net net. Uh, I think there's an art to it that you have to – use your experience to evaluate. Uh, sometimes it's not just a balance sheet that's a downside protection. Sometimes there's a hidden asset like a brand name or a customer base that you're that it's really hard to value, but your experience tells you that that is worth something in a in a in the worst case scenario. Like right, this company's worth and it's actually much you actually see that much more in micro caps where things are just aren't working and the management decides to sell or there's a, there's more activists and stuff like that. And so that's uh, I've actually become much more comfortable with that. And so that's the 80% of the portfolio. You're taking big bets. You're taking 10 10 10% uh, bets on these things, and you're hoping for longer term. I would say our lockups are average is four years. And so you're looking at 15% IRR on that. That's kind of my goal. Uh, it's worked out pretty well that our portfolio 
is about 21% gross IRR. So, but I still think uh, it's 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 somewhere in that space in the high teens. High teens space is what we're looking for, and so that usually ends up you're looking for 100% upside in three to five years, and sometimes. Um, and I can certainly point to our successes that we've had a number of positions that have gone up 100, 200. 300 percent um and based on how it's played out and some losses that we've had have um have been in that 20 25 percent range so well let's go down that road because one thing i want to ask you is and you mentioned this more or less already when it comes to microcaps, there's always there's always hair there's hair, yeah. on, hair on every no, they're never going to be high they're never going to be danaher's they're never going to be you know johnson and johnson's it's always going to be something hairy yeah and, there's you good, just have to be comfortable with that. You just have to. Well, let, yeah. well, I was going to say. I mean, you said you mentioned you had you've had some 100, 200 percent successes. You know, can you name any one of those successes that you say at first glance you're like, ooh, that had some hair on it. You know, and then ultimately you still there's something about it that you're like, all right, well, this is still something that fits most of my criteria. But you know, then you ended up, you know, doing great. I mean, do, do you yeah, have I mean, like, okay, yeah, for example, so one that's worked out really well this year, and I and I think it's uh, still still a good one is a company called Repro Pharma, and I don't like pharma. I think I think Valiant was one of my last ones that I, although I did use to cover Johnson and Johnson and and Abbott for for a large cap uh, a large cap fund. So, but I I certainly never felt like I had competence in the drug in the drug business or anything like that, and so. And even Valiant original investment was more based on an asset play rather than any continued growth that Michael Pearson brought in. And so um, uh, and so uh, I would say Repro was a good example of that where it hit a lot of check marks, but it had some hair on it, including it had a the, – the real value of it is this contract manufacturing business that's like 50% EBITDA margins, double-digit growth, uh, incentivized management that has kind of – um, indicated that the company is for sale, uh, but it was trading. The problem was they've plowed a ton of money into this drug, like hundreds of millions of dollars into this drug, and that's not a place that I wanted to be in at all. Like, right? No, I, I. It's a very binomial structure where I know Harvard MDs that are hedge fund managers that are much better at at these sort of things than I am. So that, that's not a, I don't want to swim with those, with those guys because sure, they're, sure. Much, they're much better informed than I am on the, on these things. And so I didn't know, I wanted nothing to do with that drug. Like, right. I wanted the CDMO business. And so management said, Hey, we're done with this drug. Like we fit it kind of, uh, you know, we spent money on it, money on it. The FDA rejected it twice. We're going to do legal stuff, but we're not going to do more R and D stuff. Like, right. So we're done plowing money into it. And then all of a sudden at that point, this company had become a just a contract manufacturing thing with a free optionality on that drug if that happened to to hit. And so, and since then, the company has announced a spinoff of the drug, which it's it's even much more, much cleaner. It's outperformed it's outperformed markets expectations right in line with mine on the CDMO business. But that one one was one where there was hair on it that I was thrilled with but it was so cheap i think it was like the cdmo business was like four times ebitda when the comps were like 16 um and it was a significantly much better asset that it was yeah you put you put your money in the market and, and it was trading like a failed drug company not a cdmo like it went from like 13 to five or six so we added between six and eight it was great it's, you know i guess relatively speaking with the spinoff it's like 19 today so that's worked out really well the where we put on I think it's worth 30, like, right? And so I think that's still, there's still significant upside there. Um, but uh, was one where there was certainly hair on it uh, that I felt comfortable with that in that risk reward spectrum. So, gotcha. Yeah, I mean, it's so funny that you mentioned the first one being a healthcare company because I feel like most microcap investors that probably both of us know, it's it, that's like pro that and mining and junior mining are the two that were just like, oh. Like even even if the cycle's at a good timing, you know, you're still just like, oh, it's just so far outside my core competency. Like, how do I wrap my head around this? Right, and like I said, it wasn't like a, it it wasn't it all of a sudden it stopped being a drug company and it was like more yeah. of an industrial high end industrial company that just happened to serve the pharmaceutical industry, right. and that was you know a slightly different way of thinking about it. And and it took a while for the market to recognize that, and you know, hence the timing time arbitrage thing that we were talking about. Right. So. Yeah. So, but, uh, 
Well, here, real, real quick, just have to follow up. Are you shareholder in, still in either Philip Morris, uh, Repro, or uh, Valiant? Definitely not Valiant. I've never been in it. But like Repro and Philip Morris, yes. And, uh, you know, so I, I guess that's legal disclosures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just, I just got to yeah. make sense. So, 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 so speaking no, I, I, probably, yeah, I, I will just, anything I say, I will let you know whether we're a shareholder or not or Perfect. we're sold out. Perfect. So, so, so uh, uh, this leads me to my next question in that, and it comes to generating new ideas for the portfolio. As I said, you know, healthcare is outside of my competency. I'd say it's, even though you're not a Harvard MD, it sounds like it's within your competency enough. <laughs> but, but well, it's, it's within my competency <laughs> to be able to see the value in, right. in the human psychological aspect of an incentivized shareholder base and right. board. And uh, and I think that's what I really like to focus on. And, you know, like the it had a stream of cash flows that could easily be modeled. And uh, you could probably do DCF on it. We, we didn't, but that's, you know. Uh, and so... Uh, yeah, like I said, it, it went from outside my circle of competence to inside my circle of competence. So that's one of those things. But I, I, I want to say there's a lot of people that I, I think what a way I differ from most people. Like I, I somebody was tweeting the other day and it was like, I have to know the most about this company than anybody else. And I and I'm sorry, I do not this I, I do not agree with that. I have to know the due diligence aspect of it, but like I, you know, I just have to be comfortable with that. The right pieces are in place for value creation and any focus on outside of that, I think is almost noise rather than, than signal. Well, so think, that's, I mean, that's why I differ from it other seems, people. I mean, it seems, it seems like that, like when you hear that and I, I agree with you when I see that, I'm like, okay, you know, like one, that's impossible. And, and, and two, really it's, it, to me, it just sounds more like hyperbole where you're just like, you know, yeah. when you're training for a big game or you're training for something that a big event, you're like, I'm going to just be the best at it better than everybody else. And it's more or less just to get to a point where either you can finish it or just, you know, do the best so, you can. So, so I have, you know, I have a story. I have a story for you. That's kind of like along the lines of, okay. uh, on that, like, right. So uh, I've been vocal about it. Like uh, it's oddly for a really terrible company. We've made a lot of money on it. <laughs> uh, USA technologies, like, right. And so it's, it's everybody's favorite, less least favorite stock. And, you know, for a long time, I was kind of a big bull on it. Um, and uh, it so happened that like the the CEOs like, like the CEOs incentives were just definitely not aligned with the shareholders and with what the company should have been. And he clearly wasn't competent based on everything. But it all started with him chasing me down the hallway of a conference and screaming at me. Uh, sort of when I had asked them a question why they raised money, and I was a, what, I wasn't like some short seller. I was like, you know, he knew me. I've spoken to him like three times. Uh, you know, I've met him in person. That he just refused to answer my emails why they did a secondary offering, like right, like dilutive secondary offering. When a few weeks before he was he was telling me they were still on track for a potential sale somewhere down the line, like right. And so clearly something had changed, and I wanted the answers, and he didn't answer them to me. So I had. I went to the conference and I raised my hand and I asked him that question and and he after the conference after the presentation was over he screamed at me chased me down the hallway screamed at me for embarrassing him etc so clearly this was not a good stock like right it was it was a good asset but not in the hands of that this particular man and this played out clearly in the last year if you've seen that full accounting restatement etc he finally got fired thank God last uh, last month um, but. I sold it. I sold it. Like right, and that was I was sad about it, but and it ran up to seventeen from five fifty where I sold it, but uh, clearly crashed back down to three. But I, after that, I had a bunch of hedge fund managers call me and just wanted to discuss it, and they were like, "Don't you understand their contracts? Like you know how lucrative they are, what what position what position they play." I was like, "Oh, I understand all of it." And they were telling me these like I don't want to say secretive things, but they're they're, they're knowledge base that they've developed, sure. and I think they missed. The forest through the trees. I was like, great asset, true, but it's just in the hands of a terrible, terrible person who is going to run it into the ground. And they didn't want to listen to me. But to me, like that's, I think that's my sort of, uh, I guess, level of competence is not getting bogged down in those lucrative signals or noise things, but focusing on the bigger picture. Where like, you know, this guy was clearly not 
right for this firm. So that's uh, and I'm sure you'll ask me about the management question later, but that's that that's that, that's an example. And so for legal purposes, yes, I'm out of USA Technologies, and we we no longer own it or anything like that. So I actually I, I was going to segue right into that because um, you know in going through your deck and and looking at your process when you find a potential new idea or an investment that you want to look at, you know noticeably that was out of it was speaking with management. You know, so as you know, some microcap investors, you know, that's so core to their criteria, talking to management, they need to talk to management, they have to get a good idea who they are, whatever, you know, but yours, interestingly enough, I'm not, I mean, look, it's not saying that you probably don't, but it just wasn't a core part of what that process was. So what's your take on that? Yeah, and I don't think it is. I I would say, uh, so my first firm that I worked for, Han Capital Management, that was part of their core process. They would refuse to invest in anything until they spoke to management. So in a way, this was like actually a really good experience of you know meeting with like 300 management teams and you know having these conversations, et cetera. And um, whereas with the large cap value fund, Sharf, we literally owned like you know 500 million dollar stake positions in some companies that we've never spoken to management with. My my boss just didn't believe it. He thinks they were all crooks, and it was more <laughs> of a qualitative uh, kind of mean reversion strategy, and that that was pretty uh, you know. And so those were two extremes in this industry that I sort of experienced, and I had found there's value to speaking to management, but sometimes there's sometimes there's not. Like right, sometimes they'll feed into your biases they'll say you know they'll say the things that you um that you you you'll inadvertently um you know lead those questions with that and so i think it it has but there's a risk in speaking with management to creating biases for yourself and so i try not to do it unless there is certain pieces of information that i need to confirm but sometimes i don't need that like right there's there are companies whose managements I speak with once a month or, you know, and I go down, visit them. And then there are companies whose managements I have not never spoken to. Like, right. And so I think it's a case by case basis. And especially if the thesis changes, you kind of want to have more, uh, more conversation. I mean, look, I, I, I think, uh, speaking with management is an art, not, not a science, but I think more some people really get bogged down in the art. Like I saw some 26-year-old on Twitter claim that he's really good at, you know, talk, speak, like reading management body language. Like he's like a CIA analyst or something like that. And sorry, I'm going to go with one of these here, <laughs> uh, 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 on this particular one. Like no 26-year-old in the bull cycle can, can have enough experience to read management body language. Like, right. And I think maybe there's some sort of, art to that but i i it's not for me like right i don't i don't think that's it but as far as like getting some valuable information especially in small caps and even at my small size i end up owning one or two percent of the companies um i would say the art here is just proving to them that you are a long-term shareholder and you are aligned with their interest and so for example there's a company of ours that we own i'm not going to mention it it's slightly controversial but i had convinced the ceo of this company to go out, uh, who was pretty wealthy, to go out and to silence critics, buy a million dollars worth of stock on the market, like right. And he did that. And I taught him that you put notes, uh, you could put notes in the form fours. And he started doing that. And the CFO did as well. And I think that's pretty funny, like right. And so uh, they've listened to me, and I've been, they trusted me, and that sort of worked out pretty well. It certainly created a little bit more of a margin of safety for the stock, and then the board started buying it as well. And so I convinced them that this was a value creative action that they should have been doing for a long time to silence their critics like right and that's sort of you know i would say that's an example but you know i've never spoken to the philip morris management i don't really need to so it's fine it's i think there's certain there there is no direct way to do it so i think the process really focuses on the margin of safety and um, and on the upside and making sure the ingredients are in place for the upside to happen. So, so, so then going back to a question that I had originally uh, when it comes to generating new ideas for the portfolio, it sounds like you, you kind of do all the normal stuff, going to conferences and screen. I mean, do you screen? Do you still screen? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've gotten I, – I, I would say the one thing I'm slightly proud of is that my – all of the ideas in the portfolio have come. There isn't – 
there hasn't been one magic source that has made 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 my ideas like really really great so i i would say there's been conferences um you reached out to me on twitter through my artco capital account i'm in twitter has been this unbelievable source and i get like 20 ideas a week from people just wanting to discuss it i'm overwhelmed with it and so i think the key is so i've built up a really really good network of people that i trust and so repro came from somebody that i really trust called me and pounded the table on it and said, like, Peter, you like this is it. Like you have to take a look at it. Like, right. And so this was a person I trusted and I certainly was convinced enough that that, you know, and I already had like kind of a built-in analyst who would help me answer questions who's been doing this for for on this particular stock for a while. And so I, I would say a secret competitive advantage for me is having a really good network that brings ideas to to the table for me. And um some of our successes in the past have been from that. There's also, you know, Value Investors Club. Uh, it's sort of been iffy on on its value, but it's certainly, uh, uh, it's certainly been. I've found an idea or two off there. Um, screening, uh, talking to people. Look, uh, one of the more successful ones, Joint Chiropractic, that we're out of. I had a bad back issue a couple of years ago, and I was just looking for back back solutions, and I, you know, I kind of stumbled on that like right and so that was certainly one that uh came from personal experience yeah, so that, that one ran up in the last year i mean yeah, yeah no look this was that was an example of one that you know we bought it at 550 and sold it at 18 and that's can't, can't go wrong with that right? <laughs> so, I, I, look i, I think I, you know i we just yeah, i I certainly think it's a valuable idea, but I think there's more risk on the horizon and the valuation's pretty high. And so um, uh, I think the one thing where I sort of differ with the Buffets of the world um, is especially today where there's so much money floating around and technology has been much more creative or has much, been much more a creative destruction force in a lot of business models. I just don't think you can have uh, stocks that you can put into your portfolio for like 20 years and just close your eyes. Like, right. I think having a three to five year horizon and having those things work out at a hundred to 200% certainly has been okay. Now it's a situation, situational thing. Like, you know, I, one of my bigger positions that I am still in research solutions, I'm it's up 230%. I'm not selling it like, right. And so, uh, we're going to own this thing till it hits 20. I think that's the things, you know, so, um, so that's kind of one of the case case by case basis. But as far as source of ideas goes, I you know it's pretty diverse, and I highly recommend to people just to develop networks. Um, you know, I certainly read some shareholder letters of people that I trust, and I think I may have gotten an idea. Uh, I can't think of one, but I I'm confident that I got one from a shareholder letter uh, of somebody that I liked, and uh, um, yeah, that's kind of it. So. Well, let me ask you this, and and. What would you say as a microcap focused investor, fund manager, what would you say is your biggest challenge in, in this space and, and operating in this space? Um, Let's see if we can get you a solution. Come on. No, I mean, I think there's two different things. I, uh, you know, I think there's the portfolio management perspective of it, um, which is there are certain challenges uh, associated with it. And I think, uh, the, probably the bigger challenge here is the um, uh, the like you said hair. A lot of them have hair uh, on them that you know that you just have to be comfortable with, like right. And I think that is uh, a challenge that just works through experience, like right. As is avoiding things where you can lose money, and that takes. You know, that takes experience to know the thousand different ways you can lose money. And that's interestingly enough, I think that that's a good poker analogy because what makes you a better poker player is just losing money in the most creative, losing your hands in the most creative way possible. Like, right. And sometimes and just recognizing that stuff happens in the world and you do that. And I think that's the real challenge is just becoming comfortable with uncertainty, which is much, much higher prevalent in the in in the micro cap space than it is in the large cap space, especially with less coverage, et cetera. And uh, 
and the you know the less experienced people who you know get spooked and you know they sell stuff on and liquid and the liquidity aspect of it makes things much more volatile like right but it's also an opportunity from a business perspective i think uh it's interesting because i you know i came from a pretty good background i have a pretty reputable you know two companies i work for darden you know and pretty good track record and focus there's a lot of people that wanted to give me a lot of money and to shut down artco and to run a larger cap you know oriented thing and become a larger fund and they didn't want to see me as artco when my cap even back then was like 50 million dollars now it's 35 mm -hmm. and so the, the biggest challenge is finding the right investors for your strategy and that has taken a little bit longer than i had hoped but i'm actually you know it's like it's about 10 million dollars right now and you know started with one twenty-five thousand dollar account and so we have about 40 some investors they're all locked in they're all very well aware of what we are what we're doing so like you know and i've delivered pretty well by them like you'll see in a few weeks we're having a really good year it's up over 50 percent this year and you know but last year we were down 18 right and so you just have to be uh, 2016, we were up like 30. So you just have to make people understand that, you know, as much as there is a margin of safety uh, on the uh, uh, on the permanent capital impairment aspect, the prices of it are volatile. And so that that's something that that I would say it's a challenge communicating that. And also, you know, there's a lot of institutional investors that are like, yeah, we love you. Call us back when you're 300 million dollars and we'll give you a ticket. <laughs> And we'll we'll give you a ticket for ten million, and I'm like, well, that's like like, you know, but if, like our minimum commitment's five million, and we don't want to be more than like you know you know five percent of your of your portfolio. And we're like, well, that's the opportunity, right? And th this is actually a good segue into you know what we were talking about earlier is you know why is there why is there this opportunity? And I would say you know four and a half years of uh, you know trying to market myself to various types of investors, it's just. It's the career risk aspect of it. The, the people who write the checks don't want to write checks to companies that are small, and so uh, or you know they can only be the size that I am, and so there's naturally less people doing it. Like right, most people get. Um, and again, this is all on the margin, right? And I think I mentioned that in my letter. I'm not saying there's not enough smart people in this business. There's just not enough to make the market efficient, and that that's that that's kind of both the opportunity and the challenge. Well, here so. let me let me give let me give everybody some context. So what what Peter's speaking to is uh, in in his Q3 2019 letter, um, it, he asked a question that I've been wondering quite a bit myself, and that. You know, when it comes to micro caps, small caps, you know, if the returns are so good, why is everyone else not doing this? And he was quoting uh, you, you, I'm just speaking third person. You, you were quoting uh, Roger Ibbotson's study that showed the lowest size and lowest liquidity stocks produce the highest returns. You know, so you're really speaking to this question about, you know, why is there a dearth of institutional investor presence in the space? And it's really just, it, it, I mean, again, you, you kind of just went through it, and, and I know you're going to expand on it a bit. Yeah, I mean, like, like the smartest people end up, you know, getting $25 million tickets, uh, seating tickets. I've certainly had conversation with those who want them to become a $500 million fund or a billion dollar fund or, you know, even $300 million fund. And so, look, you can't be concentrated micro cap $300 million fund. You're going to invest. 30 million. If you want to be 10% each position, you got to invest 30 million and you can't, you know, uh, some of our companies are less than 30 million, like, right. right. And so you buy the whole company, like, right. And so, uh, certainly, and I think, you know, people sort of misunderstand the costs and expenses of it. They're like a 35 you'll never scale, but I'm like, I'm one person. I'm, you know, and I charge two and 20 and my expenses are pretty low that most people don't really understand. So in the end, I'll end up building pretty significant wealth for myself via creating value for my investors uh, through the performance fee, not through, you know, a, a $500 million management, you know, 1% management fee. And, you know, and I think that makes me sleep better at night, like, right, knowing that I'm not overcharging and I'm not sort of doing something uh, uh, unethical in this particular sense, even though I certainly left a lot of money on the table for myself. Uh, what I'm doing now is works very well for my personality and for my investors and should work out really well in the long term. So, well, It goes back to what you were saying at the very beginning is that 
you know, it's, I mean, you talk about for you and your own personal, the way that you, the way that you view the markets and the way that you want to be an active participant in it. You know, you, it's not, you're, you're not in it. Yeah. You're obviously we're all in it to make money, but at the same time, you know, in order to really find these companies where you can generate the highest returns and really get that alpha, you know, it's it just the mid large cap space for you. It's just, it's, it's boring, you know? And it, yeah, at, I mean, at that like, point look, you're I, just taking fees. You know what I mean, I, I, I said, I mean, look, I've been doing this for four and a half years, like, right. And, um, I got to send out an email to my clients this, this week, year end email. And, um, saying, hey, you know, I made over 50% for you this year. Knock on wood, the year is not over, but, you know, we're still, uh, December's pretty pretty low-key. And, uh, you know, it was more of a warning for the tax purposes and some other partnership cleanup stuff that we were talking about. Um, but that certainly felt damn good, like, right? And I don't know if I can, if I could ever send out that kind of email managing mid-cap or large-cap stuff, like, right? And so that's that honestly that made it all worth it what a high for the week is like sending out an email to your people who've taken a chance on you and you know you're generating really good returns for them and everybody's happy and that's awesome so yeah, I, I'd, I i'd be pretty stoked to see that yeah and i'm like, like i'm not i'm not old enough to to stay to be here with a stoic face and like you know be like yeah stuff happens like you know we're doing well i'm like that's fucking awesome sorry they didn't mean to curse but that's uh it's Building your own business and making money for your investors is a really good feeling, and I, I, I'm certainly getting a lot more gratitude out of it than or, or satisfaction out of being a small guy that's making decent money, uh, you know, than uh, than being running like a you know a billion dollar shop having to report to uh, outside investor in terms of like running like the cedars right. and really not feeling like I'm delivering a whole bunch of value. So that's the uh, that's kind of the Maybe I don't know if that answers your question, but no, I think that, there, that's there's, the there's not enough people. There's not enough people like myself in this plenty, and I they're part of my network, but just not enough to make a market like efficient. So at first, a you know a GE or you know an AIG or something like that, or Danaher, where it has a thousand investors following them, and you know the, I would say the biggest difference is in, in some ways is just mentally working for mid cap and large cap value fund, I'd go to my boss and be like, Hey, I, I have this like 30% undervalued company and be like, get, get out of here. Like, that's great. Like, you know, the, let, let's focus on this. And now I'm just like, man, if it doesn't have a triple percent upside, I'm not interested. Like, right. And that's a very different situational thing. And I, and I, yeah, that, that's the fun part. So I'm uh, sure you have more questions. So let's, uh, Oh, we could go all day, uh, yeah, but we don't have all day, but I will, we could. Um, so I, this is one of my favorite questions that I love asking all my guests, you know, what, what, what would you say is an investing experience that really helped shape your current investing thesis? You know, most people say it's a loss. Who knows? It could be a gain. It could be a non-investment at all. But you know, what, what, what experience would you say that is? Yeah. I mean, like, look, I think, um, uh, I think certainly like, as I said, losses, like, right. You know, having that 2008, having those 2008 losses, like seeing like right front and center Enron. Like, I just remember like, this was this October, 2001. It was my senior year last semester at undergrad. And we went to, um, uh, BNI Mellon's, I think it, it wasn't BNI Mellon at the time. I was think it was still Mellon's trading floor. And, you know, the, the, as a class tour and the guy was like, who wants to see what, like, who wants to guess what Enron bonds are yielding right now? And I was just like 20%. He's like 120. Like, right. So I don't know. I just specifically remember this, like, right. And then, you know, like, and just reading all those books, like the smartest guys in the room, when genius failed, like, you know, it's like how we're all fallible, understanding that we're fallible, that even the smartest people are fallible. And so uh, instead of idolat, like, you know, people are like, I, I can't believe you've never heard of this guy. I can't believe you've never, you've never read this guy. And I think like, you know, I think my own experience shaped me. I don't really want other people's experiences to shape me in some ways. But having said that, I think, I've had some successful investments in the past and just recognizing what made them so successful. Uh, but I, you know, I would say it's 
the losses is becoming loss averse. And so well, that's one of the main reasons I stay away from leverage. Like, right, I've just seen too many companies get blown up from leverage and people pitch me the greatest companies in the world, but they all have like, you know, three turns of, of debt uh, on their balance sheet. And I'm just like, I don't really want like, that's just not a risk I'm comfortable with. And especially micro cap managers are not good at managing capital structure. I keep pounding the table on this. Um, you know, I, uh, if I had to give one advice for younger investors throwing out or micro cap, don't invest in micro caps with debt because they, you know, uh, it, it's been great in this huge market cycle, but for the most part, none of them have any idea how to manage it. They don't even know what their debt covenants are. And they certainly don't know how to, uh, uh, you know, how to deal with a restructuring or something like that. And so uh, it's just a risk that an operational risk that is, I think, is inappropriate for micro caps. And so I would say that, sure, I have one or two that have like, you know, one turn, even one turn of debt, but they have a very good stable cash flow business that can support it. Like, right. And so certain risks I'm, I'm, I'm more comfortable with, but I think I didn't actually answer your question before. I want to say I have a the enhanced value portfolio where I do take risks in some of those companies. They just happen to be like two to 3% risk because leverage does create downside, but it also creates significant upside. And so if there is something that I believe has like a, you know, a 10 to one risk reward, like 50% downside, five 500% upside. Sure. I'll, I'll throw in a few, uh, a few smaller positions in there and those have worked out pretty well and that that portion of the portfolio has matched the core portion of the portfolio as far as returns mm -hmm. and created some diversification as well and so uh but as far as what has shaped me i i really think it was those losses earlier on in the in the 99 2000 aspect and certainly picking some winners and that my boss at Han Capital has allowed me to put into the portfolio. Like Valiant was one. We've certainly had a few buyouts as well. And uh, um, and so those probably shaped. It, it's, I, I think it's experience of making money and losing money that in, in various different ways. So what would you say th this is, you know, Guy Ross, I don't know if you listen to how I built this on uh, that podcast with Guy Ross, but he always asked the question to all the CEOs when it comes to, you know, well, what, what percentage would you say your success is due to luck? versus, you know, actual skill, you know, and I, I'm going to ask this question in a, in a different way because you use a lot of probability in terms <laughs> when, when, you know, it's not just a black and white decision of, of when you're looking, when you're assessing a stock, you know, you're saying, okay, 50 to 70%, this could work or not, or not work, you know, but yeah. at what point after you've done your, your probability, your, you've done your algorithm, you're seeing what companies kind of fit that criteria. At what point do you say it's this percentage that all that work led to that company being uh, a success versus just luck. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you can't be successful in this business without luck. And, you know, unfortunately, some people have bad luck. And, you know, I, um, yeah, I mean, I would say 50-50. You know, that's probably 50% some lucky things and 50% that I was pretty dead on on. And, you know, and, uh, and also same thing with losses. Like, right, I, I was able to use some skill to blow out of certain things that in the end uh recognition of past losses has led me to get out of certain things before they led to much more significant losses and i would say that's certainly lucky that i was able to get out of those with you know 10 20 percent losses versus you know 90 percent losses that right. that came that came later and so um yeah, I, I'm certainly not going to tell you that I'm the greatest investor in the world. And please, I don't listen to anybody who will ever say that because I, a significant portion of it has been luck. Like, and I will, and I, uh, I will sit here with a straight face and tell you that. So. Well, part of the reason I even asked too is, you know, in in our discussion about management, you know, it's these are human-run businesses. It's not robots. You know, I mean. All humans are fallible. There has to be luck involved when it comes to being yeah, successful okay. or mean, yeah. a failure. <laughs> Here, here's a good one: the joint chiropractic, like right, the one that we've, we've mentioned, yeah. like right. So, I usually like to have management to be invested in the company, have a significant stake. We all do, like right. But let's just take. But I think we're all used to that sort of 
large cap, mid cap guys that are went to top business schools, probably own like three or four million to twenty million dollars worth of stock, and then you get down to the micro caps, and like you know these guys are making a couple of hundred thousand dollars a year, and uh, they're see they never went to top business schools. They're probably local Wichita State. Nothing. There's anything wrong with Wichita State. Nothing wrong with Wichita State. Yeah, uh, <laughs> uh, it, it's more of like you know they're just not gonna have the money. So with joint chiropractic, look, I straight up like I was like, hey man, how come you don't own more of the stock? And he's like, uh, I got kids in college. I gotta, you know, I'm sorry, I gotta pay tuition and stuff like that. And I mean, that's a human fallible answer, like right. Some people, and maybe that's the experience of reading management body language, etc. But that was a guy that was straight up honest to me. That was like, I, like I wish I could own more, but I gotta pay for my kids' college, like right. And that's that's as good of an honest answer as I could have could have hoped for and have uh, an honest response. And that honesty was more meant more to me than his cone, like him not being invested in the company. And so. I think that's probably the most important thing to recognize in this business is that we are all human beings. Like whatever mistakes you made, this guy that you're idolizing and that's a CEO that, you know, he's probably made the same mistakes. Like, you know, he, you know, probably got drunk one night a little too hard and said some inappropriate things and woke up the next day, recognized it's a mistake and went on. Like, right. And so that, that happens. And I think lowering your expectations and being more understanding that they're more human is, is different. But I think at the same time, those guys are much hungrier to create wealth and be take risks that create wealth that that the large cap guys don't. And I, I again, I think that's the art here is figuring out are these guys hungry enough to make money. And sometimes you just got to ask them that straight up. And so to, to, your, to your questions to management, that's probably the the question I ask. You know, my one question to CEOs are, are like, why are you doing this? Like, right? What's your I want to hear them. It's like, I want to get stinking rich. And I'd rather hear that than have some sort of like nebulous. Like I want to make the world a better place. I'm like, I want to get stinking rich with you. So I'm glad you're doing this. Like, right. And so that's probably the, the, the answer here. So I like, I like, it would be, it would be funny to hear that. Like just be a fly on the wall. If you got that answer, be like, Oh, make the world a better place. Okay. Gotcha. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I mean, that's the, again, I'll, I'll just go with like, okay, bye. <laughs> so, so you're talking to the wrong person. Here. So, so my, my, we're rounding the bend here. And, and uh, my last question, you actually already gave one bit of advice already for, for new microcap investors. And, you know, for you talking about, you know, just try and stay away from companies that have little to no debt, you know, what, what, what other advice would you say for, for new microcap investors wanting to look at the space? Yeah, I mean, like I said, I I've <laughs> I know it sounds so silly. Just like start playing poker, online poker, like you know what I mean, for free, like you know, practicing and just because uh, I think what what poker did is created comfort with volatility and comfort with losses and coming back from those losses and being comfortable with the risks. Like you know, for for some people. You know, betting five percent of the hand is a whole lot. For other people, is betting twenty percent of the hand is just right. Like, or or sorry, or your or of your stack. And so, what what that did for me is, I think it it's made me much more uh, my my gut much more comfortable with the risks I take. So I would say that's one silly bit of advice. That's probably not like is um, not one that uh, you probably hear from people, but lot. You know, surprise, surprise, a hedge fund manager or investment manager that likes to play poker, you know, Einhorn likes to play poker. And so uh, I, and he's he's spoken about it, that that's made him a better investor, too. Um, as far as like experience goes, I, I mean, I think um, just try to follow as many companies as you can and, you know, invest ten dollars in it. I don't care. Like, right. But once you uh, sometimes there's companies that I'm not I don't want to make a full position, but I will buy 100 shares for a portfolio that's, you know, one basis point, just so I'm, you know, I'm start monitoring them and maybe I'll add to them. So maybe there's like 20 basis points of our portfolio and like, you know, 15 stocks that I'd never count as anything else, but they're, you know, um, but they get me invested enough to, to keep an eye on them. And so uh, once you have some dollars invested, I think you become much more focused. And so rather than let me check back in three weeks to see what they uh, what they reported and, and things like that. And so I think that's probably a bit, bit of advice. I think it's just 
experience and losing money in the most creative way possible is, is your best bet. Like, right. So that's my, I guess, advice. It's, just, uh, just lose really creatively. Like that's There's a South park episode where they're trying to yeah. lose in the little, yeah, and it's gone. Yeah. Like, right? yeah. So, <laughs> you know what? Another one that I would, I would say that's a little bit off the, uh, off the beaten path is like Twitter has been this just fantastic source for me, my career, my personality, etc. There are a lot of very, very smart people on Twitter that sometimes are anonymous, like right, and they don't because for compliance reasons, uh, that you know they're pretty shy about posting and stuff like this and, and everything like that. But they'll end up having conversations with you in 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 the DMs, I guess, and direct messages. And so I think that's a resource that's highly under underutilized by our industry currently. And I would say that's almost a competitive advantage. So uh, I would say go to Twitter, post your thoughts, talk with people, but just be mindful that not everybody's going to respond to you and that don't take that personally. Um, and, uh, you know, sometimes you, you might be 100% wrong and Twitter will prove that to you in you know, not very nice ways. Um, and, you know, you got to you gotta take the good with the bad. But I, I would say what an amazing resource that – a lot of people in my industry don't utilize it. It's kind of crazy. So, oh, it's the best. I, lo I love it. I'm yeah, it's just fan. me. Like this website is free. Like <laughs> you get like the best, the best information. That that's great. So, so anyway, so Peter, so Peter, so we're wrapping up right of this. That's not even that, that doesn't even count. I guess I guess you, I guess you must have had a good time. I'm just saying. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> so Peter, uh, you know, we're we're, right, we're there, and uh, you know, where can my audience go and find more information about you and Arco Capital? Um, I mean, I think my Twitter account, Arco Capital, is where you can communicate with me the best. Uh, I'm weary of a little bit of marketing because uh, I, I can't. Um, you can email me, Peter, at arcocapital.com. If you have questions, I, I, I will try to answer. I get a lot of emails that I just – I'm sorry. I just don't have time to. Uh, prospective investors have to be qualified. Uh, and so if that's what you're looking for, I'm just let, letting you know that that's, we, we can only take qualified investors and, uh, uh, same email address you can reach out to. And so that's, I'm trying to be very wary of, of, of not marketing myself and, and not breaching any securities laws here. But, um, like I said, that's probably the best way to, to get to know me. So cool. Well, Peter, thank you again for joining me on the Planet Microcap podcast. It was, it was so much fun and, uh, you know, go finish your drink, man. Have a good time. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Thank you all for tuning into the Planet Microcap podcast. And thank you, Peter, again for coming on to the program. You can access the podcast by going on to stocknewsnow.com under podcast. Go to podbean.com and search Planet Microcap podcast or on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and YouTube and search Planet Microcap podcast. Stay tuned for the next Planet Microcap podcast. We're over next guest to discuss all things microcap. If you have any questions or comments about the podcast, please send an email to info at snnwire.com. I'd love to hear from all of you. This podcast has been brought to you by SNN Incorporated, publishers of StockNewsNow.com, the official microcap news source, and the Microcap Review Magazine. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you again for joining me on the Planet Microcap Podcast. Have a great week, everyone.